Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, the topic of today's episode is the most contentious, the most acrimonious, the most divisive that we have ever attempted to unpack on this show. And I'm assuming that you're talking about the 90s East Coast versus West Coast rap battle, Tupac versus Biggie. And I am prepared for that episode. Jack, it was supposed to be a surprise. (laughs) What are we actually talking about today? We are talking about the great school reopening debate. What else? Even hearing you mention that, Jennifer, makes me a little bit afraid to open the Have You Heard mailbag, given that uh, even with uh, journalistic distance and scholarly remove, we will certainly get dragged into this. Well, I just want to put out there from the very start that the point of the episode is really not to come down on one side or the other, to come down on a side, right? That it's really to kind of explore why the debate is as heated as it is. How did we get there? And I thought it would just be really interesting to talk to people who are watching this play out in their communities all over the country and see if we can take away from that some kind of bigger themes that I think will help us understand what's happening and also what we have to look forward to or probably more realistically dread next. <laughs> I am all for it, Jennifer, but you know, just in terms of how heated this debate has gotten, I think even considering uh, whatever side people are on the opposite side of uh, is something that will make them upset. So uh, given that we are not shy about occasionally upsetting people, um, we will uh, warn people that uh, their blood may boil listening to particular people talk during this episode. Uh, and it's not our fault. Well, let's get started, shall we? One of the things that you've no doubt picked up on is that the pandemic has forced all of us to become scientists. So I thought we might kick things off by hearing from an actual scientist. I'm Justin Feldman. I'm an epidemiologist. I am a health and human rights fellow at Harvard's FXB Center for Health and Human Rights. Epidemiologists do a lot of things, uh, and, and people are these days are more aware of those sorts of things. But basically, we try to understand how diseases are caused and spread and why we see different patterns of diseases, some people getting sick and dying more than others in populations. I encountered Justin on Twitter, where he managed to sum up the shifting state of what we do and don't know about COVID in a single tweet. So the the tweet went something like, uh, children don't get COVID, but if they do, they don't spread it. But if they do, they don't spread it at school. But if they do, it's only at rates that reflect community rates, but do not drive them. But if they do, uh, it's really about greedy unions. So what do we know about COVID kids and schools at this point? I asked Justin to break it down for us. 
there's been uncertainty about the role of children in relation to COVID in general and children and schools and COVID. And there have been a couple of people out there who have taken that uncertainty as a sign of a lack of risk and pushed schools to open, sometimes under less safe circumstances because of the way that they're characterizing the science. What we know is that children do get COVID, children do spread COVID, children do spread COVID in schools. There's very compelling evidence that at least when strong protection measures aren't aren't in place, schools can indeed drive community rates. There are a couple of studies looking at many different countries that have found that closing schools is one of the most effective ways to decrease the spread of COVID. And that's, that's really saying something. And because there's been nothing like a centralized response to the pandemic in the U.S., that means that you have school districts, parents, and teachers all trying to make sense of all of this data. Oh, and did I mention that things are kind of, well, politically tense right now? Yeah, it's just a testament to the failures of government at at all levels. Really, CDC should have been more on top of this. We know that there was political interference at CDC in terms of downplaying any potential risks at school. And there was a push by Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump to just say, open schools, don't worry about it. CDC got some more independence, but hasn't really conducted the kind of research that we need to answer key questions. And everything's just being punted down to the districts, to the schools, to educators and parents. And people are just listening to experts, myself included, I guess, and trying to make really difficult decisions uh, in the presence of a lot of uncertainty. Thank you for that overview, Justin. Now on to the tour. Our first stop is the Paradise Valley School District in Scottsdale, Arizona, home to parent Trevor Nelson. Trevor, please tell us a little bit about yourself or a lot about yourself. I'm married. I have four kids, freshman in high school down to a third grader. Two boys, two girls. Um, we planned it that way because I was a science teacher for eight years. So I'm kidding. We didn't plan it, but we're very blessed. But I was a science teacher for eight years. My wife uh, was a kindergarten teacher for 11 years. And we currently also have two dogs that are puppies. So that's fun. Trevor is very active as a volunteer in the local schools, and he often gets asked to serve on district committees, which he's been doing a lot of since the start of the pandemic. First, there was a committee to figure out the best learning models for kids when schools were closed, and then that committee expanded to help local schools reopen safely. What struck me listening to Trevor was the sheer complexity of what he and other parents and teachers and school leaders have been trying to figure out and how their task has been made in Infinitely more difficult by the state's political leaders, including the governor. The way that Arizona is handling the pandemic has been kind of loosey goosey and screwy. So our data sets that we were pulling from, that we continue to pull from, um, happen on different levels. So the governor, who's in charge of all of this, because he has the emergency powers, and he he is the one that has done executive orders in the state. And he is desperately wanting to have in-person schooling. In fact, he's written some of the executive orders that hinder the districts by funding virtual learning at 95% to incentivize people to open up schools. It's things like that. Our dashboard is done by county metrics. The problem is the Maricopa County dashboard made up of three metrics, it lags about a week and a half, depending on how they collect the data. So if I look at the dashboard today and I'm in red in you know all three categories like we have been for the last month and a half or so, that really is data from like Christmas. 
when we go and we're pulling data from the state dashboard, it does zip code, but it doesn't have it organized by our specific school district because our school district happens to fall in four different zip codes. The reopening battles in Trevor's community have been especially intense. There's a parent group known as the Green Parents that's been particularly, shall we say, vociferous for pushing for schools to reopen without masks. We'll be hearing a bit more about them later in the episode. The superintendent in Paradise Valley actually resigned back in December, fearing for his safety. But Trevor says that he gets why things in his community have gotten so heated. It's just this heightened sense of anxiety and difference and, and, and uneasiness that we don't know what the future holds. And that's not a good mental state to be in, especially if you're learning. That is not ideal at all. You should not be in a worried, concerned, frightened state. You know, it's almost as if the fight or flight has taken over in the population as a whole and people don't react well. And then you add on all the other things, the election, the who's in charge, who's not doing what they should be doing, lack of information, too much information, too much fake news, too much false information, what's true. So it's just, it's a whole slew of things. That I think that's what's happening. It gets expressed in different ways. And we've happened to have these green shirt parents who express their frustration and target it in what I think is the wrong direction. From Arizona, we're headed across the country to New York City, which has been trying to keep schools open. For months now, there's been a loud standoff between groups advocating more in-person learning versus teachers and some of their allies who say it's too risky. Melanie Kletter is a parent and a teacher. She subs at several schools in the East Village in Manhattan, and she spent much of the fall feeling caught in the middle. Most teachers I know and many parents I know wanted their kids to be in school if possible. At the same time, you want everyone to be safe. And it was very unclear at that time what the testing would be like, what the strategies would be like in terms of how schools were going to be able to keep people safe. So there was a very strong movement among a very vocal group of teachers in New York City to have everyone be remote. And those voices were very strong. Even at my kids' school, there was a group of parents who really felt that we shouldn't be sending kids in. There were a group of people who wanted to write to other parents to say, don't send your kids in. It wasn't even the teachers. And I was not comfortable with that. I felt like there's so many reasons why parents would want their kids to go to in-person school and that families needed to make those decisions without pressure from other parents. Like there was this judgment that was going on. The situation in New York City is impossibly complicated, but as Melanie explained the constantly shifting dynamic to me, what stood out were the various attempts that have been made to impose some kind of certainty on this incredibly uncertain situation. Take the now infamous 3% threshold set by the city's teachers union. We met one of those thresholds. I actually was subbing this day. It was in November. Though at one point, there was a threshold that was figured out with the union that if we got to 3% of people testing positive in the city, the schools would automatically shut down. So schools automatically shut down. And it happened. It was announced at 2 p.m. that day. I was in a school. Teachers were running after students with work because we didn't know how long schools would be closed. So right now what's happening is they've scrapped that plan. There's no longer a threshold that 
all schools will close. So it's happening kind of school by school. My kid's school had two cases before winter break, so it closed for a few days. And now this is kind of how the system is operating. It's very piecemeal, and the testing is not consistent. Fast forward to today, and COVID cases in New York City are higher than they were back in April. And Melanie says that she now feels less certain about whether schools really should be open. I will say that my feelings about this have sort of evolved. I think initially I felt pretty strongly that I wanted there to be in-person school, but I kept quiet about it. I was not posting anything or really, you know, and I felt like my teacher friends who had kids were in the exact same position I was and felt very similarly that they didn't want to be out there talking about it. Now, it does feel like the safety concerns have increased and I have kind of shifted my thinking to say, maybe, you know, it's not safe for teachers right now and staff, and maybe we should have a wholesale closure, but that's not even on the table anymore. Now to New Orleans, where parent advocate Ashana Begard lives. Schools in New Orleans have been opening, closing, and reopening in response to COVID. She has two kids, one of whom is on the autism spectrum. And while virtual learning has been, as she puts it, hot trash, Ashana says that her son is vulnerable because her city is vulnerable. Black people have a different perspective on COVID because a lot of times we're the frontline people. And when people first think of frontline people, they think about like doctors and nurses. They don't think about the janitors. They don't think about the the CNAs who are the people who are cleaning up the coffin and the stuff, right? And then even when you go into the stores, a lot of the cashiers, especially in a city like New Orleans, our cashiers are black, our garbage people, our most of our male people, like people who literally every day we depend on. So those people have to go home to their children, right? And we understand that more than most because a lot of times it's us. So we're being exposed and it's to no fault of their own. People have to go to work. People say, well, the rent was on hold. Yes, the rent is on a freeze, but it's adding up. So people are going to work. They're going to work where they're exposed to COVID because they're exposed to all these people and then their children are exposed. And then if their children are going to school with my child, unfortunately, it's just a fact that, especially in New Orleans, Black children have more asthma allergies. Our children have more weakened immune systems. So they're going to school with my son who has asthma, who has allergies. The likelihood of him catching COVID is now higher. Even if he loses a whole year of education, he can catch up on his skill set. If my child dies, you know, I can't do anything. Like, there's, that's it. So what would it take for Ashana to feel comfortable sending her son back to school? If the schools, the city, the state, the federal government were willing to put in what most parents think are required for schools to be open. So like if every class had eight children, if they were doing tests, quick tests every week of all the administration, if they were cleaning the classrooms and buildings down like every single day, you know, if all these things, if they were picking up children for school individually, because you can't put them on a school bus, right? If all these things were happening in concert, I would feel safe to send my child to school, but also they're not. Full disclosure, Ashana is a good friend of mine. She's also one of the loudest critics of New Orleans' all-charter school system. So I was curious to hear how the school reopening saga looks to someone who has been so critical of the local schools. 
this is putting people's lives at risk for a political agenda. At the end of the day, it's to look like you're doing something, not to actually do something. Because when the children are back in school, there is not, you haven't hired more support. You haven't hired more reading instructors and more individual instructors. You haven't hired the things you would need to do to catch these kids up, right? So what are you actually doing? One of the things that Ashana told me in our conversations is that she wishes teachers in New Orleans would fight harder to keep schools closed. New Orleans' charter school system, as you probably know, is essentially union-free. And it made me think about a surprising poll that came out while I was working on this episode. It found that parent attitudes towards teacher unions have actually grown more favorable during the pandemic, and that Black and Latino parents are much more likely to view teachers' unions favorably than white parents. My name is Diamond Tate Brown. I am the president of the Baltimore Teachers Union. The Baltimore Teachers Union has been embroiled in a pretty bitter battle with the school district over reopening. Baltimore City Schools wants more buildings open for in-person learning. The union says it isn't safe and that schools should stay virtual, a position, by the way, that the majority of parents in Baltimore agree with. We still have no publicly available city schools health dashboard that displays the health data that the school system is even using to make reopening decisions. And so to us, that's disrespectful because for you to think that it's okay for you to just tell us what your decision is based on whatever meetings you had in a school board meeting and on a forum and in an email exchange. And because you're the leader of the school district, it's supposed to just be okay. That it's not. And we deserve to know, how are you making these decisions? We're also asking for simple things like a testing plan. Our school district still hasn't committed to a comprehensive COVID-19 testing plan for students or staff. And that list goes on and on and on and on and on. Brown was born and raised in Baltimore. She was elected as president of the union in 2019 as part of a rebellion against the previous leadership. And she sees the union as advocating not just for its members, but for the whole community. During a pandemic that's hitting black and brown people hardest, that means taking a hard line on keeping schools closed. With us having this idea of this bigger idea of what unions should be fighting for when we are fighting for safe reopening of schools and we are advocating for a safe reopening of schools. What that does is that the definition of safety actually becomes expanded because now safety is not just about what happens in the school building. Safety is about everything that's going on from the school building back to your house and back to the school building because now the community is involved in this decision making process. It's been much more challenging, I think, for the district to work with our leadership because our leadership is not status quo and it's unpredictable because when you're working with community members and are directly impacted, you have to follow their lead. We lead from the bottom up. We ask the community, we ask the students, we ask the parents, we ask the members, what do you want us to do? And then we go out and do it. So, Jack... I think what's so amazing about listening to all these stories is that on the one hand, they're all totally different, right? We're hearing from people in very different parts of the country. And on the other hand, the same themes are already rearing their heads again and again. And one of them is this idea that responsibility has really been punted. We've heard that word now several times, right? It's been punted from the federal level, punted from the state level. People are dealing with it at the county level. And when you think about how... People are trying to handle this very complex 
you know, make sense of all these decisions. And then the there's something about our fragmented education system that in some ways makes this a million times worse. And I'm wondering if you, Jack Schneider, for the first time are just like sitting at home and thinking, you know, it makes a lot of sense to really have a federal system. <laughs> and I hope you liked my Jack your, voice your, there. Your impression of me is really, it was spot on. I, I got a little worried that I was starting to talk without realizing it. You know, I'm not sure that our system, our federal system, as you called it, um, ever makes much sense. Um, you know, there are certainly strengths and weaknesses to it. Um, the weakness in this case is that the federal government has some powers in education. State governments have more powers generally, and local governments uh, have their own set of powers. And then never mind the kinds of autonomies that uh, local schools and communities have uh, in terms of you know individual school-level decisions. Um, this oftentimes is a strength, and there are people out there who will make the case that it is always a weakness that we have so many levels for decision-making. But some decisions are best made at an aggregated level, right? So if you're trying to promote equity, for instance, doing so at a high level of aggregation, right? It makes more sense to do this at the state level or at the federal level because you have more power to kind of even out differences there. And then with other decisions, it makes sense to pursue them at a lower level of aggregation, right? At the, the local level or even the school level, even the classroom level. So in terms of, you know, creating a uh, curricular program and designing a kind of pedagogical approach that matches particular kids, it wouldn't make any sense at all to try to do that at the federal level, given the kinds of disparities we see uh, across communities, across regions here in the U.S. Um, so all of that makes uh, pursuing some sort of coherent policy with regard to school safety really complicated because it's not entirely clear where that falls, right? We see big differences in terms of COVID rates across communities, across different kinds of demographic groups, right? Some communities being far more exposed than others. Um, we see a big racial divide in terms of attitudes about sending kids back to school. At the same time, it makes a lot of sense to try to pursue a coherent national approach um, to this question of whether or not schools should be open. Back to our great reopening debate grand tour. Before Jack joined us, we heard from the president of the Baltimore Teachers Union. Unions, as you may have noticed, often get the blame for schools being closed. So I was curious to see what's happening in states where unions are really weak. Next, we're headed to North Carolina. My name is Renee Seckel, and I live in Cary, North Carolina, and run Save Our Schools, which is a grassroots parent advocacy group that supports public education. Renee also spends a fair amount of time on Facebook, where parents in her area trade explanations for why schools in Wake County are closed. And they come out, and they claim that the reason our schools are closed is the union, the North Carolina Association of Educators which to me is kind of odd considering that in North Carolina, not only is collective bargaining outlawed, but so are strikes by public sector employees. Right now, they're blaming the unions and actually, in particular, one teacher in Charlotte for the fact that schools across the state are closed. And when you point out to them that, well, the North Carolina General Assembly has 
$4 billion in unspent funds that they've been sitting on all year and have lifted no fingers at all to spend one cent of North Carolina funds to help our schools become safe where we haven't started vaccinating teachers. We've done nothing as a state to help our schools reopen, but we're still blaming the teachers union for schools being closed. When I heard Renee mention that a single teacher is being blamed for school closures in North Carolina, I had to know more. It turns out that he's an English teacher in Charlotte, where he teaches at the Waddell Language Academy. His name is Justin Parmenter, and I asked him to start just by giving us a sense of the school reopening debate from where he sits. I I think what the debate sounds like is we've got a lot of educators who are concerned and I'll say it's not just educators we have a lot of parents who are who are equally concerned about the possibility of children going into a building at a time where we can't necessarily guarantee their safety where we have buildings with inadequate ventilation we have completely inadequate contact tracing um, and there are just a, a lot of holes in, in things like staffing, you know, not having sufficient supervision to be able to watch children and make sure that people are following protocols, distancing, keeping their mask on their face. And so we've got that, that group of people that are concerned enough to believe that right now, especially with where we are in this pandemic in terms of viral spread right now, that it's safer for us to stay in remote learning. And then on the other side of the issue, we have parents who believe that health concerns, that the safety concerns are exaggerated. We've got a lot of people saying this is no worse than the flu. Children don't transmit it. Most people who get it don't die, don't suffer any long-term health consequences. We're depriving children of their right to a high-quality education. We've got a lot of parents who are using the equity argument and saying this remote learning is having a disproportionately negative impact on, on students of color and families of color. Often it's privileged white families who appear to be making that argument. Now, North Carolina does have a teachers' union. It's called the North Carolina Educators Association, and Justin is on its board. And just like in the rest of the South, the union is weak by design. But for parents who are looking for something or someone to blame for the disruption of the pandemic, that really doesn't seem to matter. There are claims being made by those affluent parents that the North Carolina Association of Educators has some sort of undue influence with the governor. Governor really hasn't done a whole lot. In North Carolina, they pretty much kicked it to counties to solve this problem on their own, that we have some sort of improper influence on school boards. We're actually defending a lawsuit right now. There's a hearing on Friday over this lawsuit where we're actually being sued by a group of parents who are alleging that by advocating for students to stay in remote learning, that we engaged in a violation of the law that prevents work stoppages. The claim is basically, as I understand it, that because remote learning is inferior in quality, that it constitutes a slowdown of the learning process. And so the claim is being made that that's a work stoppage. It's a little bit of a stretch. As for how Justin himself became the teacher responsible for keeping schools closed in Charlotte, well, I'll just let him explain it. I think, I guess it's that by writing about my experiences and my opinions and my, my feelings about K-12 education, about safety issues in our school buildings, that I am somehow changing the equation or changing the, the balance of opinion and, and school board members are making decisions that they're making because of this mysterious power that I have. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an engaged educator. I'm not the only one. We have a lot of educators who are, you know, who believe that 
our policy decisions need to be informed by classroom teachers, by educators who have the closest frontline view of, of what the work looks like. I don't think that should be something that's controversial. And a lot of us feel that way. And so we engage in the work and we, you know, we show up at school board meetings and we write emails and we talk to other teachers about opportunities to do the same thing. And it's just basic organizing. But, you know, it's, I guess, seen as nefarious by parents who don't like what's happening right now. The anger of certain groups of parents towards teachers and their unions is, of course, a major theme of this story. But it's not the whole story. If you listen closely to the parents who are demanding that schools reopen, you'll pick up on another familiar theme. They often use the language of individual choice to make their case. Here's Renee Seckel from North Carolina again. We see the same language being used in these reopen debates. At one point in a conversation on Facebook, somebody was talking about the equity issues inherent in keeping our schools closed. And I told her, I'm so thrilled to hear you talking about equity. There's a coalition called Every Child NC that's been working on getting equitable public education for our students since before COVID. Why don't you join us? That would be wonderful. And she said, I'm not going to join anybody until every parent has the choice of whether to send their child back to school. And that, that language of choice is being used, and it resonates very strongly, particularly with the contempt for unions. Remember way back at the start of this episode when we touched down in Scottsdale, Arizona? Well, as parent Trevor Nelson has noticed, the green parents who take their inspiration from the COVID dashboard, where green means go ahead and open the schools, they also make their case as a matter of choice. So their big push is, we want a choice. They, their big cry is, give us a choice. We want our choice. You know, don't take away our choice by closing in-person schooling. And their, their concept and their rhetoric is, you know, the choice is, I want to send my kids to school, and then you can choose to keep your kids at home if you want to. So they want, in some ways, they want both options, but they really just want their kid to be in school. And they don't really regard or give considerations to the teachers and the staff who, technically, you know, they're not bulletproof. They're human. They get sick. And some of them need to take care of their own families. In Trevor's district, by the way, the showdown has been between parents and the officials who are tasked with making decisions about local schools. And that's true in lots of parts of the country where unions are weak or non-existent. Jenny Robinson helps run the Monroe County chapter of the Indiana Coalition for Public Education. She has three kids in local public schools, two of them in person. Where she is, the deepest divides have been between groups of parents. You, you know, you can't say that the parents are unified on either side of this between parents who wanted to keep the schools closed, wanted to have everything online, and then parents who were really desperate to have their kids back in school had to be working, didn't understand why things should be different for teachers than they are for them. And then they're, you know, a very vocal set of people, certainly not coming from a uniform place, but their voices were very strong. People whose kids have special needs, people who are really emotional, who just felt like their kids were losing so much, losing gains that they'd seen them make and really, really wanting to get them back in school. What all of those parents have in common is that they feel really powerless right now. And so I think, you know, when we think of other people as having this tremendous power over our fate, we <laughs> feel like we're talking to the powerful. I think from school board members' perspectives in the administration, I mean, they're not like some nameless, powerful official who controls the funds. 
there are people here in our community doing the best they can and trying to work with just this huge, you know, river of competing demands. I think it's been really hard. Carrie Mixa is the chair of the Monroe County Group. It's a coalition, which means that the whole point is to try to hold people together, even though they don't necessarily agree on everything. And that is really hard right now. The pandemic has been such an unknown for us. And, uh, you know, there's like that straw that breaks you and you just send off that hateful email to somebody. Um, And, you you know, in real life, if you had to talk to that person face to face, it may not be that angry. The brunt of it, I believe, has been the administration and, and the school board. I don't think it's been much fun for them right now. They are working so hard and um, trying to just make sure that everybody is safe and satisfied with what is available right now during during this pandemic. One of the big questions that came up again and again as I talked to people for this episode is whether the rifts that have opened up during this awful year will ever heal. Well, for the final stop on our great reopening debate tour, we're headed to Kansas. Why Kansas, you're wondering? Well, you may recall a few years back when a broad coalition of parents, teachers, and Kansans of all political stripes basically revolted over deep cuts to school funding. Judy Deedy, who heads up a group called Game On for Kansas Schools, says that that alliance is now splintering, and she's really worried about that. You know, when we have been successful in the past, it was because we just had the teachers and the parents and the school boards and the superintendents all saying the same thing, all saying this is not okay, this is not okay, and rowing in the same direction. And I'm just kind of worried that that mutual collaboration has been splintered a little bit. Like in a lot of states, Republicans made big gains in Kansas in 2020, and the GOP here will be aggressively pushing school privatization. Didi says the fallout from the pandemic has made countering that a lot harder. Now we've even got parents in our district, which has been really one of the strongholds of public education support, now being friends with the Kansas Policy Institute and saying they want vouchers. My district's trying to pass a bond issue right now, which is not great timing, but they've already pushed it back a couple of times. I'm seeing both teacher side people saying, well, no, the district didn't care for my health, so I'm not going to vote for the bond issue. And other parents saying, why should I pay for a bond issue if my kids aren't in full-time school? I think the last bond passed with an 80% pro, and we're just like, you can't, you, oh my gosh, everyone's lost their stinking minds. (laughs) A huge thank you to everyone who shared their stories for this episode. Jack and I will be right back to talk about why the push for in-person learning has suddenly grown so, well, insistent. I'll also be springing on him the topic for our In the Weeds segment. That's the special extended play version that we do for our Patreon subscribers. Today's topic, learning loss. If that intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast to become a supporter. So, Jack, I have to say that even as I was working on this episode, my feeling about the topic grew darker, that it really started to feel to me as I watched news playing out in in some of these states where the debate is at its hottest, that 
that there is an agenda here and that in places where you see governors pushing now really hard for in-person learning, right? So like in West Virginia, the governor said, you're going back on Tuesday, that's it. In other states, the you know, Arizona, for example, the governor has basically said, you know, if you don't reopen for in-person, you're going to lose funding. Like even more sort of intense and hostile rhetoric than we heard in the fall. So, you know, I can't quite, you know, I don't want to be that person who, you know, sort of thinks always ends up in a conspiratorial place. But I I just had to wonder, like, what is this? You just this? can't stop being yourself, I can't though. stop being myself. <laughs> it's just me. But, but what is it? What's the, like, what is going on here? Can you help me make sense of this? I think it's two things at the same time here. Uh, on the one hand, uh, elected officials are trying to respond to a kind of collective exhaustion that is being voiced by parents and families of kids who have been home for nine or 10 months, going to school online in a way that is often disengaging through no fault of the teachers and certainly no fault of the kids. Um, And, you know, this effort to push hard to reopen schools is you know, in some cases, a fairly predictable response to uh, constituents, right? And to the, the, the demands of parents who have kids at home and who really are at wit's end. Um, on the other hand, there is something else going on here, which is that, um, you know, in every crisis is an opportunity. Uh, and for the people who already were inclined, right? Leaders at the state level, legislators, governors, um, you know, often uh, working hand in hand with right wing think tanks, right? For folks who already had it in mind to begin moving public dollars into private schools, who already had an agenda around expanding school choice from charters to vouchers, um, for folks like that, right, this is a tremendous opportunity to show just how out of touch the public schools are, right? If your school won't open, then let's give you the dollars so that you can make a decision about where your kid goes to school because there are lots of schools that are open, right? And it's presented a tremendous opportunity for advocates of a privatized system to make the case that private schools right now are responding to consumer demand. They know that they would go out of business if they didn't open their doors. They are dependent on tuition dollars in a way that public schools are not. And that completely changes the dynamic there between families and schools and gives families a lot of power. And certainly we could make some points uh, about the importance of that, right? We could have a conversation about the importance of empowering families to be involved in decision-making processes at the school. But as you and I have talked about a lot on this show, a lot is lost if parents suddenly become consumers of education rather than participants in really what is a civic process, right? The reason we fund public education in this country with taxpayer dollars is not because we are just trying to provide human capital for individuals to use out in the free market. It's because we all benefit from an educated populace and turning education into a commodity that, you know, individual families go out and pursue in a free market 
undermines that broader public aim. Well, I have to say that even though I did come away from my reporting for this episode feeling a little downhearted, what restored my faith was really just the the how impressive these all these folks are as they try to navigate just this impossible situation and how they and even you know across different opinions and and points of view like you really come away feeling like you know talk about civic engagement so i thought why not continue this delightful theme into our special in the weeds segment that we do for our Patreon subscribers. And Jack, I picked this one out just for you. And I'll give you a little bit of hint, a little bit of a hint. Um, There's some alliteration involved. What could it be? I don't know, Jennifer. This is, it's, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. This is like how I feel at this point of the show. Uh, every time, like I'm, I'm with you, but but also, I you know, could just tell me it's learning loss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so important. Uh, no, that's a good topic because you know, listening to you talk about, um, you know, how impressed you were at how civically engaged people are. Um, I was actually sitting here thinking, well, not the people who are just shrilly shouting about learning loss. Um, that's just really not helpful right now. So yeah, let's let's go into the weeds and have a conversation about that. If this intrigues you, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by sending a couple dollars our way each month. We're running a special right now. If you join at the $10 a level per month level, we'll send you a free copy of our new book, A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. What an intriguing offer. (laughs) And for those of you who would like to keep your coins in your change purses, there are lots of other ways to support the show. Uh, You can go on wherever you've gotten it and make sure that you're subscribing. Give us a review while you're there. It helps people find it. Uh, Share the the latest episode or your favorite episode with somebody who you think might like it. And of course, you can engage with our Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. We've gotten lots of good ideas for shows from you there. And it's always nice to just get a little feedback and see how you're responding. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>